0: Hello, my guest today is Martin Sirk, International Advisor to the Global Association Hubs Partnership and owner of Sirk Serendipity, who thinks associations need to get much better at communicating the power of meetings. Martin, welcome to Deep Dive. It's great to be back, nice to see you. It's been a year, hasn't it, since we last did this. You were my first guest on on Deep Dive and um, we're still in the thick of, of this pandemic. It feels to me, When you go on LinkedIn or or social media channels, there's an expectancy that at some point someone's going to fire the starting gun. There's going to be a specific date when business events, international business events will reopen. And it's not going to happen like that, is it? I don't think so.
1: And I, I think the main reason why people have got the wrong impression is that most people are in a very national bubble when it comes to media. So they're hearing a very specific narrative of what's going on in their country they're not necessarily looking at what's happening in neighboring countries. They're not looking at the dynamic between different countries. And particularly, they haven't really grasped that there are two totally different approaches to the, to the pandemic going on. There's a zero-COVID approach, in mainly in Asia-Pacific, with you know, China, Taiwan, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand, various—Australia, uh, New Zealand— who have made the attempt to try and get it down to very, very low levels so they can stomp on every single outbreak. And then you've got management approaches and mitigation approaches in much of the rest of the world. And so everybody is thinking about this through the prism of what is the policy that they've taken for granted is the global approach. But in, in China, everything's open. People are running like you know, running around to whatever they want to do, restaurants, entertainment, conferences, exhibitions, mm on a national level.
0: Mm. Whereas other places, of course, everything's shut. Yeah, and this is true of somewhere like uh, Singapore, I noticed, so their idea of a local spike is not our idea, of. when I say our, I mean the UK's <laughs> idea of a local mm-hmm. spike. So they, they hammer down very, very quickly as is, we've seen the cancellation of the World Economic Forum meeting yeah. and, vari- and various other things. So it's going to happen piecemeal, isn't it? It's going to happen maybe near regional, local. How do yeah, you see I a kind feel- of way out of it?
1: Yeah, I, I think I was predicting probably about 12 months ago that we were going to see, obviously, national events rebuilding, reoccurring where it's safe to do so. And we were going to see multi-hub events. Mm. And we were going to see uh, much smaller scale events. I think Singapore was one of the pilots of this, where they brought in people, monitored them really, really carefully. They had secure bubbles next to Changi Airport. Yeah. Uh, But they weren't simply opening the floodgates and saying any delegate can come in. It was very, very tightly controlled. So we're going to see smaller scale when it really matters for people to be together in person. Those will still happen, I think. Mm. But but it's not going to be just this this wide open thing. And the problem is that uh, once you do start opening more generally, if certain parts of the world are either not trusting you or vice versa, that's going to create lots and lots of extra friction. Mm. So it, it, it's going to be a minefield,
0: frankly, for the next 12 months again, probably. Yeah. We have to, each country has to trust the data coming out of, of other countries. Um, so if you're an international association and you have delegates typically flying in from, I don't know, 70, 80 different countries, that scenario seems to me a long way off.
1: I think so. Uh, I, uh, a lot of the associations I've been speaking to are definitely booking global-type events for 22 and 23, and much more confidently 24, 25, and all of them really believe strongly in the importance of having that global interaction. Mm. They think that culturally, in terms of knowledge sharing, in terms of their social mission, it's really vital. But they're equally all very pragmatic that stuff can change on a dime, that they're going to have to change their plans mentally, they're they're aiming for reconnecting, Mm. but they are planning for all kinds of scenarios. So looking at the forward booking pattern doesn't necessarily tell you what will happen. It just tells you what they would like to happen.
0: Well, this is probably easier said than done. But is there a sense in which associations should try to push the pandemic, specifically when it might be over, uh, to the back of their minds and just treat COVID-19 like they would any other uh, risk factor if the risks of meeting in person are too great? Uh, you just plan for virtual or uh, hybrid and, and move on. Um, and that really, what associations should be thinking about is the continuation of their uh, of operations and focusing on their on their mission statements. Uh, what what the pandemic has
1: certainly done has has forced associations to really think about and focus on their mission mm. and to think of what is really critical for survivability and to be relevant in the future. So that then applies to all of their activities and and their objectives. So they're no longer thinking our objective is to run a meeting. Mm -hmm. They're now thinking our objective is to achieve this healthcare goal or this scientific goal or this social goal. Where do meetings fit into that? Which bits of meetings are absolutely critical and which ones are nice to have? Mm. And where it's nice to have, they're switching around to alternatives. But I, th- I think the, the real shift uh, is not so much treating the pandemic like any other risk. It, it's an entire shift in thinking about risk. Mm. I mean, I, I've been involved with boards where, in many ways, risk management would be an agenda item once a year and you would tick through various boxes and give yourself various scores and try to mm-hmm. quantify the levels of risk. And I think that kind of uh, simple matrix box ticking exercise approach to risk uh, has gone. It, it's no longer a, a, an adequate way to look at it. Now, I think the uh, uh, associations and other organizations are thinking about risk in terms of, you know, what, what is existentially risky? Mm. What, you know, what could actually wipe us out or, or cause us to be so critically damaged, we, we just limp on in future? Uh, what type of risks should we be taking? Because otherwise, we may no longer be competitive in future. So risk is becoming embedded in all of the thinking Mm. of associations, not simply as an add-on to one board meeting a year. Mm. And I think that's the really fundamental change that the pandemic has brought to association
0: thinking. So from that answer, it suggests to me that um, associations may have been treating risk management as as a bit of a box ticking exercise and the coronavirus pandemic came as something of a a shock, an unexpected shock that they weren't prepared for.
1: I I, I would say that not just associations. I think generally the whole notion of risk has been turned on its head because of the pandemic, because it is such a, a unique situation. And I think that generally organ you know leaders of organizations have realized that there was a whole category of stuff that was not being factored into the the risk management scenarios. Uh, and now I, I hope, at any rate that um, there's going to be a much uh, more intelligent way of looking at this. Obviously, if you some associations were telling me recently that that part of their objective is to prevent a fear of risk causing paralysis, yeah. And that's the really scary part. Mm. You've got to embrace a certain amount of risk. Mm. Otherwise, you, you literally can't move. Mm. Um, but they now know what's possible. They now know that even if their organization has been in existence for 100 years, it could be wiped out. Uh, and that, that really changes everything.
0: Yeah. So th- it's all about focusing, remembering why you exist and focusing on, on that. And, and a meeting might just be one part of a broader toolkit to um, fulfilling your mission, just to, just to expand on that a little bit. Do you think meetings had become, in a sense, you know, means to an end in themselves, and that associations had kind of lost sight of why the meeting itself was taking place?
1: I, I don't think anybody would answer you in the affirmative if you ask them directly. Mm-hmm. But for for sure, associations had, you know, the annual meeting, yeah. the biennial meeting, the, the a meeting which is suddenly created becomes a new annual sub meeting. Um, there is a certain inertia and and habit that grows into the meetings and you put the justifications around it. I think now associations are interrogating much more deeply, you know, what are they trying to achieve Mm. with this particular meeting? Can they do it another way? Does it need to take this form? Does it need to move around the world? Can it be distributed? You know, those sort of questions are are being asked at the highest levels all the time. And I think there's no association I've Leader I've spoken to who has not been very seriously looking at their events program and questioning it in ways they hadn't been
0: doing before the pandemic. Okay, that's interesting. So I want to move on to um, vaccine passports and the idea that this could be a way uh, a way for associations to to reconvene face to face in the in the medium f- future. What are your thoughts on vaccine passports as a way out of this?
1: Wow. Well, we're <laughs> we're into a complex subject there, mm. um, not least because we're not 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 everybody is talking about the same thing. No, it's uh, a travel passport. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's yeah. yeah well, is it a certificate? Is it a passport? Is it about uh, data security? Is it a question of personal freedom? Is it trust in the state? Uh, is it linked to? ID and ID control, ID rights? Is it about the surveillance capitalism of the big companies and do we let them into our lives? So once you start talking about this, it it, it be, it's become a hook for many people to put different arguments onto yeah. that may not be directly related to it. So the, the point I would make is that even at the moment, if you travel internationally, you are traveling with um, the equivalent of... A vaccine passport. Uh, I'm I'm now traveling a little bit, and typically I'll carry a a portfolio of printouts. It will be, I think there are three forms that I need to fill out for travel between the UK and Europe, both ways, uh, which are brand new, including obviously negative PCR test results. Uh, I'll carry with me a copy of marriage certificate. I'll carry property uh, proof of proof of residence, if I've got business meetings, I'll carry printouts showing that those business meetings are scheduled uh, because there is potentially so much friction at the borders mm. that you want to be prepared for any eventuality. So I, I'm not talking about somebody going on a two-week holiday. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they'll still have to go through various hoops. But if you're travelling on business, typically now, whereas previously you simply rocked up with your passport and your, your, yeah, your QR code for the, for the ticket. Mm-hmm. Now, it in my impression, it, it smooths things through. If you've actually got everything there, you can literally lay out and say, here's why I'm coming. Here's the proof that I'm entitled to actually cross this border because I, mm-hmm. I have a res- yeah, residency rights or I have a citizenship rights. Um, those sort of things are, are already there. Mm. Uh, And I I saw a report in in one of the the British newspapers recently that 95% of immigration officer time is spent interrogating um, paperwork related to COVID tests and the forms that now you have to fill in. Mm -hmm. 95% of the time. So the idea that um, a vaccine passport isn't going to come, you know, it's
0: already so in effect. There, there, mm.
1: there, there, will be, there, there is already friction. There are already strong controls in individual countries mm. or blocks of countries which require you to provide more bureaucratic identification and information than you have previously had to do. Mm. And I think that, actually, if you had such a thing as a global vaccination certificate, uh, it could actually make things smoother. It could actually allow things to to travel much more easily. And uh, somebody I was actually interviewing recently uh, in Estonia, Mm. Estonia has been working from a year prior to the pandemic breaking out with WHO and the European Commission to develop a safe, a smart uh, vaccination or healthcare certificate. Uh, And Estonia is one of the global leaders in secure data systems, uh, they have, you know, all their citizenship is is uh, on in the cloud, but it's very, very secure. Mm. So their companies have been chosen by WHO to help develop programs which will give people uh, the confidence that any data they supply is going to be treated with the right level of confidentiality. Uh, to me, that that's one of the huge issues. I, I, I would not feel comfortable if people start outsourcing to Facebook or Google, right? Uh, to actually manage this type of process, mm. I mean, we've seen what happened with Serco yeah. outsourcing on test and trace, and I think potentially it could be a huge screw up. Yeah. Um, so that that's the only international program that I'm aware of that is heading there. But on the national level, you've got all kinds of um, healthcare apps which have been widely picked up across Asia Pacific mm. countries like Korea, in China you need to show uh, uh, an official QR code to do a lot of things. Mm. You certainly had to do that during the, the height of the pandemic in that, in that part of the world. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you need to do now, but they have the tech infrastructure that I suspect that for traveling, those citizens will be required to include vaccination information into those apps so we'll see some national programs. Potentially, we may have a WHO-endorsed uh, version mm. as well. Um, and, of course, we'll, we'll have um, rules that are, are going to be set by airlines and by IATA
0: and various others. Yeah. So this is this sort of pertains to to travel, I guess, getting from one country to the next. Is it, especially if we zoom in on the actual event or the actual meeting, um, that doesn't cover all gaps because you'll have, Domestic travelers, people traveling across land borders, and, and what have you. If you if you're organizing a international event, is it even practical to to think in terms of having, I don't know, a, a, a negative test uh, certificate, or or are there too many complexities and too many issues there? I mean, one thing like you say is the integrity of the of the certificate. How do we know it's not been faked? How do we know it's it, it's genuine? Is this something that organizers should be thinking about or, or is this again is it a bit of distraction
1: i suspect it would be a distraction simply mm. because wherever organizers choose to hold their meeting they will already have probably four layers of um requirement vis-a-vis vaccine or testing to deal with yeah. that's at the borders that's um the national laws within that country it's the regulations within hotels and meeting venues um, and also whether those companies are required by law to do certain things or whether they have a choice of doing it or not. So mm. already you've got that stuff going on. That's that's plenty for the organizer to be dealing with. If they then layered in another set of their own requirements on top of that, mm. they've then got to work out, well, is this actually in alignment with what's happening legally, locally? Mm. Or sure. not. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th- I think you're right. It's, it's one thing that you know, boards may demand a policy, but I, I don't think it's practical. I think you've got to pay attention to what is legally required mm. within, those, within those jurisdictions. Yeah. But, but let, let me say this, I mean, because you know, here I am predicting what's going to happen. My 95-year-old mother-in-law who lives in uh, Silicon Valley is a member of the Santa Clara Women's Club. If you want to have lunch at the Santa Clara uh, Retired Ladies Club, you've got to be vaccinated. If, you do not have, if you're not fully vaccinated, you cannot rock up to that lunch. Wow. Now, if you'd asked me a year ago if a women's club anywhere in the world would, demand, would, would, would not allow some of their members, if they hadn't had a health procedure, to go to lunch, I would have said that's a barking mad idea. It's extraordinarily difficult to work out what is going to happen in this area.
0: Yeah, no, it is. But earlier you said that there's a great desire amongst associations to to meet face-to-face and that this is something that hasn't, the value of meeting in person has not been lost on on associations. But even having said that, the value proposition will have changed by the time COVID-19 is no longer a threat. I think there's, you know, we've hinted at it earlier that there's going to have to be more of a, a reason why, if the technological options are available available, Uh, and they are now, and they're getting better and better all the time. Investment is being pumped into them on a weekly basis. It's the why. That's changed, hasn't it?
1: Correct. It it has. And I I think that certain things on face-to-face are extraordinarily difficult to replicate online, and other things are very easy to replicate. Mm. Uh, And I I think meeting designers and decision-makers are going to have to really look carefully at those hard-to-replicate values, uh, and and put those at the forefront of their meetings. So, you know, the opportunity for cross exchanges across disciplines, the the possibility of asynchronous meetings, the possibility of, um, yeah, reacting in real time in controversial ways to what you're listening to, those mm. sort of things, uh, I think um, are far, far more difficult to, Replicate online. I, I've never yet seen um, a really good um, both sides debate after listening to something. Mm. That that that. Whereas in a in a live event, you can have that sort. Of, you can go into breakout rooms. You can have let's really tear this idea apart, mm. whether it's scientific idea or a, a policy idea. That's much, much easier to do face-to-face. You yeah. try and do that online and you end up in trolling and people getting, you know, the emotions aren't, and because you don't have all the body language to allow no. you to understand what people are really saying. Chat does not allow you to get across that nuance. Mm. So, but but, you know, if you want to listen to the Nobel Prize winner expound on their latest paper, you can record it. Yeah. No. You can broadcast it. You, you know, that, that is not something. And that was one of the main reasons that you would drive people to an event. Hey, you're going to be in the same room listening to the Nobel Prize winner. I mm. think that type of argument doesn't
0: hold water anymore. No, I think associations have to be brutally honest about what does work online and what could, yeah. even, work, could even work better online. I mean, one thing is um, keynote speakers the quality mm-hmm. of keynote speakers. If you're not paying accommodation, not paying for their travel, I've heard associations landing these great speakers who they'd never imagined they could have done before simply because it's, it's hooked up, hooked up virtually. So that's, so that's another thing they have to think about. Now you represent the global associations hubs partnership. Um, in what ways do you think the relationship between associations and host cities uh, would have changed when we emerged from this crisis?
1: I, th- I think one word probably sums it up. it, it, it It's a a shift from a transactional relationship to a partnership relationship. Partnership is going to be critical going forward. Um, My cities uh, in the Global Association Hub's partnership, that's Brussels, Dubai, Singapore, and Washington, D.C. Uh, The value proposition there is wanting to partner with associations on their strategic development, Mm -hmm. wanting to host their offices, help them develop be the the source for their regional programs and their their programs and provide advice and provide also the right ecosystem to support those associations. Now, partnership, I think, is going to have a a number of different dimensions. Uh, It goes back to what we started talking about, which is risk. Those cities which can become genuine risk share, risk coordinators with associations are going to have a head start because all associations want to minimise the risk of their activities and their events. Those destinations which can offer some reassurance in that and not simply throw out some standard contracts, or even worse, uh, have 10 different types of contracts with the hotels in that destination. Um, You you can imagine that that Mm. is just... Mind-blowing. Also in terms of partnership, in terms of design, how they design events, how they use the city, the whole of the city, not just the convention center, Mm. uh, how they provide technological support, both ongoing and for the event. We've already seen the emergence of uh, hybrid city alliances and, you know, destinations which are trying to clearly show that they have got TV studio capacity mm. and other types of facilities, which will allow uh, the creation of hybrid or multi-hub events. Uh, in terms of legacy and you know impact of events, that sort we've talked about that many times. Uh, but also about uh, how do we work together to create better intellectual capital. Mm. Uh, how do, how do we really try to help associations to link with our universities with our research institutes with the top thinking companies uh in the destination though, those are the areas where which will differentiate the 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 cities that move ahead in this world and those that that you know the ones that revert back to bed nights and mm. tourism even though that you know clearly that that sector is hurting Enormously hurting, um, and there is always the, de- the, the temptation to go back and think we've simply got to get the bed nights up. Yeah, but I, I, I really do believe that those that think more deeply and look for genuine partnerships are going to, going to come out of this ahead.
0: Does, does this will this require a, um, a change in the way convention bureaus? are set up or which departments they fall under or how well resourced they are. Because I think of convention bureau is not particularly well resourced. A lot of them, quite small operations, a sort of adjunct an an adjunct to tourism. Things have to change that end as well. Don't they? I think things are already changing. You know, the,
1: the many traditional bureaus have lost very large slices of their funding, which are are not not necessarily coming back. Um, So, and, and a lot of cities are, are rethinking what is the purpose of the, the visitor economy. You know, they're they're putting the citizen at the centre of mm. uh, of what's going on. So, the, the, but there are many different ways of skinning that particular cat. Many different structures, lots of different ways of of embedding it. But I think that the the overall necessity is for whoever is doing the destination marketing and talking to associations and driving meetings needs to really have much stronger relationships with those intellectual capital stakeholders within their city or their destination, and also with the policymakers. Mm. So so they shouldn't simply be a marketing adjunct um, running campaigns. They need to really know who they can introduce the associations to, how they can create new... Uh, how they can create new ideas to make that association's activities more uh, fulfilling or more creative.
0: What they need um, is…
1: It's not just about venues and party venues and support on the logistics. It's it's really helping them understand how they can achieve their their strategic objectives.
0: Yeah. It sounds like the skill set there is kind of business development roles, a a good networker, somebody who can put people in touch with, with uh, with the people. And yeah
1: I, I, I've seen you know some of some of the appointments of people coming into bureaus have come from economic development or from uh technology side or the startup field i mean the, the, there's definitely an understanding that it it can't just be traditional destination marketeers leading the way mm. we need people who understand yeah you know, how do, how do you attract yeah you know, objectives to change so it's it's about attracting young people attracting startups uh encouraging ecosystems to develop, uh, those sort of skills are not just about going to trade shows, putting advertising campaigns together. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now I just want to move on to um, to sustainability because I think in many ways what's happened during the last 12 months has has focused minds on sustainability in, in the sense that so much has shifted to the online online realm, but I've just got this hunch that sustainability is going to really define the size, makeup, and shape of, of meetings. Um, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, it, I think it's inevitable that the, the climate crisis
1: and sustainable responses to that uh, are going to be the dominant theme for the next decade. It's going to be about new technologies, about reinventing business models, about uh, equality, and... Um, and inevitably, within that, uh, the question of uh, what is the carbon impact of this event—is uh, this being organised for frivolous purposes—that is going to be on the agenda. And and in many ways, the old school bed nights-driven approach um, would make would have made the industry incredibly vulnerable to those sorts of arguments. Um, and I think that purpose-driven meetings, meetings that are designed to achieve positive societal outcomes is the answer to that. Mm. Uh, So I I think we can construct incredibly powerful arguments for why meetings matter. Mm. Uh, But we have to also be cognizant that that there is this huge risk that meetings can simply be tarred with the brush of uh, relatively wealthy people jetting around to exotic places to, to backslap and network in the bar. Yeah, we, We've got to change that narrative and really ensure that people understand that this is about solutions to real problems, that these gatherings of, of intellect or business have a, a, an impact on the, des- the, the host destination and its citizens in a positive way. Um, mm. so, so we've got to you know, brush off the old arguments and come up with some new ones. Mm. And and make sure that we're we're all singing that particular song, yeah. and that we're we're not not reverting back to the, it's good for tourism, it's good for jobs in hotels. That mm. that that is a byproduct of it now.
0: I believe. Mm. I, I I completely agree, and I think I think in the past the meetings industry, let's say, has been reluctant to sort of go there in terms of sustainability because it sees it almost as a as an attack on what it does. But I think. That's looking at it in completely the wrong way. We have to remember the value of what we do hmm. is that these meetings have positive outcomes and positive wider societal benefits that you know can outweigh any environmental harm that is associated with it. Obviously, you try to minimise any environmental impact, but and um, the world can't stop. And, and if there is a reason to travel abroad, then then maybe five thousand scientists learning off each other it's not a bad reason to travel abroad. It's not
1: a bad reason, but, we, but we've got to get better than simply saying 5,000 scientists learning sure. off each other. Yeah, we've yeah. got to, I think that's that's one of the next big challenges for the industry at large, probably after my time, I suspect. But but we've got to end up with a much more robust portfolio of metrics that, mm. that really does point to the outcomes, the, the, the positive impact uh, and I know some some individuals, companies, organizations, cities are, are working on this. Uh, I think I think a lot more needs to be done.
0: It's tricky, that, though. That tricky, though. It, isn't is, it? it how, is tricky. How, how do you manage, how do you measure yeah. the, the outcome of a meeting when, you know, you can imagine a sort of scenario where two people seed a partnership at a meeting, but only yeah. really comes to fruition maybe five, six years down the line. Mm-hmm. How do you measure that?
1: Well, there the, the have been some very good examples of organisations that have done that. I think Europe, European Cardiology Society, mm. uh, have been very good at measuring impact on take-up of survival-improving techniques around the world from their okay. meetings, for example. Uh, the uh, the International AIDS Society uh, did some great work around storytelling, mm. where delegates would go back and actually send in the precise story of what they learned and how it how it improved outcomes in the place where they were working either as a, a nurse, an advisor, a clinician, a researcher. And those were compiled together into fantastic books of evidence. So, so there are some examples out there. And I think that the fact that it's difficult to measure, uh, and that some things are are impossible to distill down into a small number of numbers doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Sometimes it is about uh, the storytelling and the sheer weight of positive stories can be more impactful than having some numbers. It's one of those areas where I, I don't think associations and organizations will compete with each other. I think it's an area where if more of them share what they're doing and more of them do it, then all will get lifted by that particular tide. Mm. So I, I hope we're. Gonna, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see many more examples of smart associations and smart PCOs and AMCs coming up with better metrics, better case studies, better examples. And the key thing there is that we share them, whether it's through a platform like IMEX or it's mm. whatever methodology it is through the media. We need to get this information out and make it available so that, that everybody in the industry can use it as evidence when they're talking to policymakers, or increasingly when they're going to have to talk directly to the citizenships of different countries.
0: But to, to be clear, and I, it, it is about the associations providing this information, isn't it? I think sometimes the meetings industry itself has got this a bit the wrong way around, and it's sort of looked at it yeah. on a citywide level. And, you know, how can this city prove legacy? Well, actually, it's not about you. It's about the association is needing to prove this. and
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that, again, it comes back to partnership. The, the, mm.
0: the city needs
1: to think, how can we help this association tell its story as well as possible? But also think, well, there is a city benefit. There is a city story within this. So if we can work with the association, the, the, the association will be much more likely to talk about the city side. And there are many practical, simple things that can be done you know, your star speaker should be giving a public lecture in your local university or even on the town square. You know, let, let, let's, let's demystify some of the stuff that goes on at uh, healthcare and scientific conferences, you know, recruiting really good popular science communicators mm. to explain to the general population why this stuff matters yeah. rather I mean- than simply dealing with it as, a, as an esoteric thing that is not of interest to citizens. I think if the pandemic has shown us one thing, it is that people actually have a hunger for this type of knowledge mm. and they want to understand the facts. They want to listen to uh, people who know what they're talking about. Mm. So I think this, it's a huge opportunity for associations to get involved in the public sphere of um, explaining how science works, explaining where things are going, Mm. Uh, explaining why why they care passionately about that particular subject.
0: Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. I think I've always found it slightly bizarre that these meetings can sort of take place in a bubble almost where you have sort of thousands of experts coming into a city and the general public might not even know it's happening and they don't get mm-hmm. to interact I mean a very simple thing was what I think Glasgow did these coffee shop lectures and uh, or I think London did um, little heart monitoring tests when the cardiology yeah. Congress went just little things like that you know just let yeah. the city know that something is happening and they can engage. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Glasgow, Glasgow did a great job on those, those examples. and I, I think, you know, they shared that story with others. I, I wish more cities would proactively go, go and do that. You know, but then that, that's one of those little jobs. Someone has mm. got to coordinate 20 coffee shops and make sure the arrangements are there. Mm. You know, it, it's not just about the macro level and getting the big strategy right. It's about putting in the capacity to do this stuff at the micro level yeah. because, you know, that's where it, it makes
0: a difference. Hmm. share with us a prediction for the next 12 months, five years, or 10 years.
1: Oh, easy, easy. <laughs> prediction game. Okay, 12 months. Um, there will be more friction. And the other prediction is that, that because we're, we're walking through a that my, my favorite metaphor for the next 12 months is that we're walking through a minefield.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, some of the mines are, are really hidden and we don't know where they are. Some of them, we've got a kind of hint of where they are, and others have got actually a flag showing the location. Crazily, in some, in some cases, we're actually walking over the ones with flags. That we should try to avoid. But inevitably, we can't predict if, if something is going to blow up somewhere in a particular country, or we're going to get a variant which escapes certain vaccines. We, we don't know. Um, yeah, you know, we don't know, for example, you know, say we open up in a particular area and one event becomes tarred as a super spreader, mm. what the reputational impact of that is going to be. So 12 months, it's a minefield. We've got to walk very carefully, but don't tread on the mines which are already flagged. Okay, for five years, I think there are two things I'd flag up. Uh, one is the trend that has already started and is pretty certain, and that is the move to remote working. Uh, I think that's going to create all kinds of opportunities for companies to hold more meetings because the meeting is going to become much more critical for the culture and the coordination of where that company is going. Um, But also the, the type of skills needed in community building and community relations are going to make the business models that associations already have much more relevant for the corporate sector. So associations stand to rise up in terms of their potential importance when this trend is actually more out there. So that's really positive Mm. for associations. The second thing is I believe that uh, we're in a golden age of association creation at the moment. Uh, The only problem is that those people who are creating these associations don't realize they're doing so. There's this huge explosion of special interest groups, everything happening online around a problem, an issue, a new community, a way of thinking. All of these are actually the foundation stones of new associations. Now, some will survive, some will not, but they're, they're being created faster than I believe has ever been the case in in living memory. Mm. Uh, And that inevitably, I think, is going to create demands for those groups to meet, to get together to, and they may not be large meetings. They might be small and specialized. They might be regional or localized or distributed. Um, They might take on the form of e-gaming-type events who the hell knows? But mm. there will be more associations, and I think inevitably there'll be more association meetings as a result. So both of those two things over the next five years, I'm very optimistic about. Ten years, simple, simple answer, no idea. Anybody who predicts it is <laughs> out of their skull. But I think I would say one thing, and that is um, there, will, there will probably be, at least one black swan event, Mm -hmm. one major global event that we can't really predict. And I'm not talking about another pandemic or another outbreak. That's actually more of a gray or white swan. Mm. We know that's already factored in. Um, I'm talking about things that that I can't even list now because I'm not sure what they might be, but they could be political, economic, could also be healthcare-related or conflicts, a solar flare that wipes out half of the GPS satellites. (laughs) Something in the next 10 years is going to come along that is going to fundamentally challenge us. Not simply along the, you know, an unexpected tipping point on climate change is is in the gray area almost. Mm -hmm. But we now know, thanks to the pandemic, that things are potentially going to happen that we had not factored in. So I, I think... Yeah, you know, building in your anti-fragility strategy or your resilience strategy for any organization is going to be critical. Mm. Uh, building in yeah, more flexibility, agility, that's essential. But, but anybody who will sit down now and say, this is what it's going to look like in 10 years. Don't trust them. To, don't trust them. Don't trust them at
0: all. Well, listen, it's been fantastic talking to you again, Martin. Mm-hmm. It's always a great, a great pleasure. Just before um, we wrap this up, I know you're an avid reader. You're often sharing your um bookshelf and new new buys on 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 social media. What's the best book you've read in the last 12 months?
1: Okay, so I've 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 really enjoyed reading James Rebank's books, uh, The Shepherd's Life in ah, English yes. Pastoral, yeah, which yeah. I think is fantastic and and really important to read now that we're talking about UK-Australia trade deals and mm. impact on marginal Cheap beef. farms. But the book that uh, I am buying multiple copies of to give away that i'm going tr- I'm looking to try and get wholesale deals on that i I really would recommend everybody to read is uh, uh, the physicist Carlo Rovelli's new book, uh, okay. which is which has got a, a really long uh, title that should be a strap line rather than the title. He needed to have something a bit more like the Black Swan or some something because yeah, yeah. it's called "There are Places in the World." where rules are less important than kindness.
0: Uh, and it's, how, it's does he, culture- how does that even fit on the spine? There we are. Martin's um, showing, me, showing me the copy of the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, it's, it's a wonderful
1: series of essays um, about his heroes in history, from Aristotle to Copernicus to Newton to Einstein, um, his mentors and heroes through his own life, but more than that, it's it's about the nature of scientific inquiry, about our place in the universe, friendship, conviviality, the importance of uncertainty. Uh, how it we sounds learn. like a book for the
0: ages. This it's a it's it's
1: I'm I'm gonna pretty much put it in my luggage wherever I go from now on and, and bore people rigid about it. But it's it's they're wonderful essays. Yeah. Um and what Yeah, just to roll the whole thing back to us talking about meetings and associations, what what struck me at various points in in reading it was how many of his ideas came about through a conversation on a bus Mm. at a conference, uh, a discussion in the bar uh, after a a talk, listening to someone speak and disagreeing with what they said, Mm. Um, what uh, a great hero of his said at a conference in the 1920s. Um, there are there are so many things in here about how going to meetings help to make him the human being that he is mm. uh, And I think that's really the the ultimate message that we have as an industry, which is that this is not simply about improving life as society, sharing scientific ideas, uh, building businesses. This is a way for individuals to gain a much more rounded understanding by interacting with people from different cultures, different parts of the world, different opinions, uh, and also interacting with, with new streams of knowledge mm. that, that help them to grow as people. Uh, and I think that is at the bedrock of the face-to-face meeting. And, why, and we need to constantly reassure that. So Carlo Rivelli, go out and buy it. What's the title um, again? Then, Just give
0: us the title again. There are places in the world where rules are less important than kindness. Brilliant. So that and the Cumbrian sheep farmer, James Rebanks. Yeah.
1: Uh, I, 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 won't, I, I won't tell you the other five on my still to read, but I've also found time to work through a couple of trashy thrillers. Yeah. Uh, and I'm about to read Empire of Cotton, A New History of Global Capitalism.
0: Wow. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. OK, thank you very much for the reading list. Thank you very much for your time again today. We've, we've uh, had a great chat. Um, yeah. Martin, it's always a pleasure. And let's do this again soon. Um, and I said it last time, but let's hope that we see each other again face to face at some point. Absolutely,
1: James. Thank you very much indeed. It's been, been fun.